It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The late Justice Antonin Scalia was a conservative icon and the court's champion of originalism, the approach to constitutional law that adheres tightly to the words of the founding fathers. What are we saying? What did these concepts mean when, when they were adopted? Now, as, as for the difficulty of figuring that out, the historical problem, yes, there is a I'm not pretending that, uh, that doing it by text and, and the original meaning of that text is perfect, that it's going to solve every problem. But it solves an awful lot of problems, especially the most controversial ones. While Justice Stephen Breyer is an advocate of the living Constitution, the belief that the Constitution is an evolving document that changes over time. Breyer and Scalia debated the efficacy of the two approaches. And the Constitution, in the application of it, adapts to the circumstance in order to keep the values the same. The issue is whether a judge can say, The living constitution has morphed, and so what used to be okay is now not bad, uh, is now bad. That's that's the living constitution I'm talking about, and it's it's the one that I wish would die. (laughs) Now, six years after Justice Scalia's death, it appears he's won the debate. Originalism is deeply ingrained in the current court's decisions, employed by a majority of the justices and even invoked by the liberal justices. But is originalism fulfilling Scalia's pledge that it would keep judges from injecting their personal views into the law? My guest is Elizabeth Wydra, president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. People hear both terms originalism and textualism. What's the difference? So originalism is slightly different from textualism, although it should start from the words of the Constitution, and that it shares with textualism, of course, as textualism, the name suggests. But originalism goes a little bit more broadly, and when it's looking to what the words in the Constitution mean, it looks to what's 
termed original public meaning. So that's, you know, what was the general understanding of the words that were written into the Constitution at the time they were ratified. The late Justice Antonin Scalia was the court's champion of originalism. I don't remember hearing much about it before Scalia. Scalia was definitely the most prominent, I think, jurist who ascribed the originalist philosophy. It definitely came to the fore, I think, during the Reagan years. There were several prominent members of the Reagan legal administration, like, for example, Ed Meese, who used the originalism philosophy. And then a lot of conservative academics would also ascribe themselves to the originalist philosophy. But it has gone through some changes over time sort of the way it was first used, and I think even before Reagan, you could trace it back to around the time of school desegregation cases. It was originally used as this kind of what would the founders have done kind of mind meld. So the kind of academic term for that is original expected application of the term. And that quickly went out of fashion because it became very clear that that wasn't any way to interpret a constitution in the modern world. (laughs) And so it has kind of morphed even in conservative spheres to this quote-unquote original public meaning, which looks more to a broad understanding of, you know, what did equal protection mean? You know, what did freedom of speech mean? That kind of understanding, as opposed to expressly limiting ourselves to what the drafters of that language would have thought it applied to at the time. You know, this allows us to take into account, for example, changes in technology or changes in society. Women can vote now, so we're part of society. So that kind of shift in the conservative originalist philosophy has taken place. I remember events where Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer would talk about originalism versus the living constitution. But it seems like even the liberal justices are almost afraid to use that phrase living constitution anymore. Yeah, I definitely think that in some way conservatives have won the branding war in terms of coming up with a narrative around why the conservative at least claim of originalism is better. Their idea was that, look, originalism is tied to the Constitution's text and history, so it restrains judges from injecting their personal views into things. You know, it isn't just based on changing policy preferences. But that's where I think conservatives have gotten into trouble now that they actually, you know, it's like the dog finally catching the car. I think they're getting into trouble because what we're actually seeing when they apply originalism is that a lot of those claims of why originalism was better than any other method in terms of restraining justices and keeping it tied to the Constitution doesn't seem to be playing out in these big cases we've seen in the Supreme Court. Yeah, Justice Scalia said that originalism would keep judges from injecting their personal views into the law. But then why do we have cases where the originalists on the court differ? For example, the Bostock case, where Justice Gorsuch joined with the liberals. So Justice Scalia himself would acknowledge that, you know, originalism and constitutional interpretation were not, in his words, as easy as pie. But a lot of it depends on the question you ask. So if you look back to say, you know, what does the word equal mean in the 14th Amendment? What does the term liberty mean? You can take a broad lens to that or you can take a narrow lens to that. So the whole idea that somehow originalism is like putting a question into a computer and it spits out an answer, 
that's just wrong. And we've seen that with the way that, for example, Justice Alito takes the constitutional text and comes up with a very limited vision of liberty. And another person can take that same text, that same original public meaning of the 14th Amendment, for example, and have a much broader vision of liberty. Following up on that, in some of the most controversial decisions of the term, the case you mentioned that took away the constitutional right to abortion and the case that established a constitutional right to carry a handgun, rather than the words of the Constitution, the majority opinions used historical analysis going back as far as 12th century England to justify the results. Is that the correct way to apply originalism? Absolutely not. I think the first step of an originalist constitutional interpretation would be to look at the words of the Constitution and have them be their guide. And what we saw in both of the cases, and I think especially in the abortion case, was this conservative majority on the court using state practices and centuries-old history to subvert the actual words of the Constitution instead of using history to enlighten the meaning of those words. They were using history to, in many ways, gut the meaning of the words of the Constitution. And I think that points out a very big flaw in conservative originalism, which is that it focuses very much on the Constitution as it stood in 1789. But it really fails to grapple with the radical changes to the Constitution made after the Civil War, particularly in the 14th Amendment, which wrote into our Constitution sweeping guarantees of equality and liberty. And when you look at the original public meaning of those words, which again is kind of the second step of originalism after you look at the text, we see that the concerns that motivated writing those words into the Constitution were very much about righting the wrongs of enslavement and the deep deprivation of rights and oppression that took place under the slave system. And so the 14th Amendment, in the words of its own drafters, was intended to be a constitutional revolution. That's how one of the members of Congress at the time described it. And conservative originalists, and we're seeing this on the court, we saw it especially in the abortion case, do not grapple with that constitutional revolution that wrote into our Constitution broad concepts of liberty. Justice Alito's opinion called the most important historical fact the state of the law in 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted. And then he pointed out that in 1868, three-quarters of the states made abortion a crime, at least in the early stages. So I think what is really remarkable about that is that if you think about the 14th Amendment, you know, it was drafted right after the Civil War, half the states were slave, half the states were free. It was intended to disrupt discriminatory state practices. The idea that you would use the 14th Amendment to enshrine into amber discriminatory and unjust state practices goes against the very concept of the 14th Amendment, much less the language contained within it. So using those state practices at the time of the 14th Amendment. And, you know, historians also disagree with the way that Alito describes that. I'll I'll leave that to them. But just as a matter of constitutional law, the idea that you would take a constitutional amendment like the 14th Amendment that was intended to disrupt discriminatory state practices and instead use it to enshrine those discriminatory state practices demonstrates a real, frankly, misunderstanding of the 14th Amendment. And, you know, in the EPA case this term, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion, 
all of a sudden they came out with this major questions doctrine. I mean, where did that come from, and how is that part of their philosophy of originalism? Yes, that is an extremely good point, because the flaws in what conservative originalism has wrought on the Supreme Court you know, the, the problems of conservative originalism on this court are not just limited to individual fundamental rights. There's also this view of the federal government that is truly untethered from constitutional text and history. And that case is a perfect example. If you claim to be a jurist who is limited to constitutional text, coming up with a major doctrine that limits the ability of the federal government to act in times of national crises, that is quite a departure from, you know, this restrained method of jurisprudence that conservative originalists have promised. And what we're seeing, I think, with this court on questions ranging from the structure of the government, rule of law, all the way to individual fundamental rights, we're seeing a a very aggressively conservative court not being restrained at all by any labels of conservative originalism or anything else. Justice Kagan, at her confirmation hearings in 2010, said we're all originalists. And Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson said originalism had become the established method of constitutional analysis. In your analysis, is that true? You know, I think it is true in a very basic sense. Look, if you are a judge and you have a constitutional question presented to you, you're going to first look at the words of the relevant constitutional provision And then you're going to think about what those words mean. And so to the extent that originalists have kind of co-opted that common sense constitutional interpretation, again, I think it's probably a great feat of branding, you know, then yes, that's true. And progressives as well as conservatives should claim the Constitution, should argue based on its text and history. And, you know, there are many strong progressive arguments in that text and history. And I think that's what we're seeing reflected in more progressive jurists like Justice Brown-Jackson and Justice Kagan and noting that, yeah, we do that too. It seems astonishing to me. It's, it's only been six years since the passing of Justice Scalia. And the rise of originalism is sort of astonishing to me. Yes, well, you know, Justice Scalia, after he passed, he created the opportunity, you know, through Mitch McConnell blocking Garland getting on the court after he was nominated by President Obama and then allowing for President Trump to fill those seats. They allowed for a really radical shift to the Supreme Court, which was already a conservative court under Chief Justice John Roberts. It wasn't as if it was this great liberal court and then President Trump put people on the bench and it became suddenly conservative. It was already very conservative. But what happened was after Justice Scalia's passing, we saw a substantial number of justices added that ascribed to an originalist philosophy, which is really the predominant conservative method of looking at the Constitution. But again, in some ways, it is just basic constitutional interpretation, but with a label that kind of makes it seem like it's more objective and not tied to any sort of ideological agenda. Question whether or not that is true. And I think a lot of people are seeing these cases from this last term as showing the hollowness of the conservative originalist label. And instead, you know, really, I think people who have been critics of conservative originalism are saying, look, this is what we've been saying it is all along, just a label that covers up, you know, a regressive and a very conservative ideological agenda. Thanks for coming on the show, Elizabeth. That's Elizabeth Wydra, president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. 
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Beyonce's track Energy on her new album Renaissance is missing something. The portion of the 2003 R&B dance hit Milkshake that was in the song originally. After musician Khalees complained that she was not properly credited as a songwriter on the album, Beyonce removed that portion of the song. This situation is a warning to emerging artists who could find themselves locked out of lucrative royalties if they don't secure the credit for their contributions up front. My guest is Robert Clarida, who heads the intellectual property practice at Reitler, Kalis and Rosenblatt. So Beyonce did credit Khalees, who was 24 when the song debuted nearly two decades ago, as the performer and Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo as the songwriters. What does an artist who wants to use someone else's work in their song have to do? What kind of permissions do they have to get? What kind of royalties do they have to pay? Typically, the way that works is, and you know, there's really two different kinds of copyrights involved here. There's the copyright in the song, and then there's the copyright in the recording of the song. And those are two different things. Sometimes they're owned by the same person. Sometimes they're not. Frequently, they're not. The record label will often own the copyright in the sound recording. And the songwriter will own the copyright in the song. My understanding in the case of the energy track 
is that it was not a sample of the sound recording. It was Beyonce actually singing the melody. It wasn't a recording of Khalees' voice singing it. So if that's the case, then it would only be the songwriter that would have to be approached about that. And typically in a situation like that, where a small piece of, of a song is used, it's called an interpolation is the term that's often used in the industry now. There will be some kind of a fractional percentage paid from the revenues of that song. You know, the person who owns the piece that was interpolated will get some small percentage of the of the royalties generated by the song. But it's a negotiated thing. There's not like, you know, standard price. It's all, you know, how popular was the first record? How big is the second record? You know, what kind of bargaining power does everybody have? It doesn't seem like Beyonce did anything wrong here. I mean, I can certainly imagine that if the song on the Khalees record was credited to Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, and they say to Beyonce, sure, you can use it. If I were on Beyonce's team, I would say, okay, we've got the writer's permission here. We're fine. And they would put the credit on the record accordingly. I mean, if there is some kind of backstory that the credits on the Khalees track were not accurate, how is Beyonce going to know that? I mean, you know, Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo presumably would know that if that were the case. But Beyonce wouldn't know that necessarily. So I'm not sure that Beyonce did anything wrong here other than taking somebody's word for something. And to the extent that someone on her team had looked up the credits on the Khalees record, they would have seen those two names on it. And they would have had no reason to think there was a red flag there about anything. Khalees said she took part in the writing. It was supposed to be 33-33-33. Do young artists have to get a lawyer to make sure their rights are protected when they're involved in projects like this? They need to have someone with some industry experience, whether it's a manager or a lawyer. You know, the actual title doesn't much matter, but it has to be somebody with some industry experience who can know sort of what the pitfalls are. And that's often not the case, particularly when artists are first starting out. I'm not familiar with Khalees' career. I don't know how many records she had made previously. Maybe she had a lot of experience in the industry. But it seems in that case that if she did participate in the writing of the song, and it was her understanding that it would be one-third splits all around, there should have been a piece of paper somewhere, and someone representing her should have made sure that there was a piece of paper somewhere that set that out, that that's what the splits would be. Oftentimes, that's handled in a very kind of you know quick and dirty way with what they call a split sheet. At the recording session, somebody will just memorialize what the splits are for a particular song, and maybe that was done, maybe it wasn't done. But there should be a piece of paper that's actually got signatures on it and has some legal enforceability in order to prevent this sort of thing happening. Pharrell and Hugo could renegotiate her credit on Milkshake, but would that open them up to needing to make an accounting? That's really a question that goes to uh, what kind of a claim could Khalees have against them. It's difficult in a situation like that because if there was some piece of paper that she signed off on about what the songwriting credits were and what the splits were, it would be very hard for her to undo that. You know, there are certain things you can say about a contract, you know, that you were fraudulently induced into signing it because somebody told you something that you relied on that wasn't true or whatever. There are arguments like that that theoretically somebody could make. I don't know if the facts here would support any of that. But I would put it this way. Nothing in this situation would happen unilaterally, I don't think. If there were to be a, a revision in the credit of the of the milkshake track, it would be something that Khalees would sign off on, and it would be negotiated you know, among the parties. And it would be some a way of forestalling any other legal action. 
Khalees signed a contract that she says she didn't understand. That's a hard argument to win. I mean, there was a really awful case involving Frankie Lyman and the teenagers who had some big hits in the 50s, like doo-wop records. And they signed to a really, really awful contract with a sort of a notoriously shady record producer who sort of took all the credit and all the money. And Frankie Lyman was 15 years old at the time or whatever. And he said, hey, I was 15. What did I know? But he didn't come forward until much later. Many years had gone by and and he sort of said, "Okay, now I'm going to make an issue out of this. And it was too late. You know, you can't sleep on your rights that long and then later come out of the woodwork and say, hey, well, now that this song is, is valuable and I'm, I'm an adult and I understand what happened, you know, it's just unfortunate that the legal system draws a line and says, nope, sorry, you can't do that. And we've, you know, obviously in some situations like outside of the copyright world, you know, the statute of limitations can be told for certain reasons. And, but something like that would be really, really hard to come back after the fact. There's typically a three-year statute of limitations for copyright infringement. So if you're a young artist and you're working with some established artists, do you risk the established artist telling you, you know, forget about it, your contribution isn't worth it, isn't worth the trouble, isn't worth the money? Oh, oh, sure, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's really a matter of bargaining power. I mean, you can stand on principle and say, well, you can't use my contribution if you're not going to credit me as a writer, but that's probably not just going to result in that particular record not happening, but that may have further consequences down the road. It turns develop a reputation for being difficult to work with, whatever. You ruin whatever relationship you thought you were trying to build with this established artist. You know, there can be all kinds of other sort of reputational consequences and so on. So, yes, you are faced with that dilemma, but, you know, in every business, you know, there are dilemmas like that that people face. You know, what trade-offs do I make now to sort of go along and get ahead versus standing on principle every time. Thanks for joining us, Bob. That's Robert Clarida of Reitler, Kalis, and Rosenblatt. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.